Last week, we started a conversation trying to answer the question, does God even want friends? If I'm going to make a four and a half month case that God wants to be best friends with you, and I'm, we're going to get to this later in, in the series, uh, but hear me, not every follower of Jesus is a friend of God. I'm going to tick some of y'all off when we get to that part. Following was the invitation. Intimacy was always the goal. I'm all over the map right now in my head. I'm not even to my notes yet. Y'all are in trouble. Last week, we started answering the question, does God even want friends? And I said, well, you need, if you want to answer that question, you've got to study God before man. So we did that. Then you've got to study man before the garden. We did that. And now we're going to transition. But remember the phrase I gave you last week to calibrate your thinking. What God had with God, God wanted with man. That's why he created man. Let me personalize it and bring it into the present tense. What God has with God, God wants with you. It's pretty powerful. Okay, now the phrase I want to give you this week as we go into the garden now. So we're going to talk about God and man in the garden, and we're going to talk about God and man after man's mistake in the garden. All right? Here's the phrase I want to give you to calibrate your thinking this week. What God wanted first, God wants forever. This is the law of first mention, theologically speaking. The law of first mention says that when God does something for the first time, one of the things he does is he declares his desire for that thing. So what God did in the garden with the first man in part, God was sending you and me a message about God wants with this man and that man and that woman, okay? What God set up with the first man for the first time, I believe God desires with every man for all time. The transition statement that is Genesis 2 verse 4 is significant in that it serves as a line of demarcation between the account of the creator creating creation and the account of the creator intimately interacting with his favorite creation. We'll get to the verse in point number three, but I want you to just think about two questions and the answers that come with them. What is the high point of creation? Day six. The person, when, when God makes man, let me give you another way to see it. The highlight of creation is day six because day six is when the creator creates for himself a new best friend. What's the highest compliment in creation? Day seven. When the creator stops creating, looks at his new best friend and says, out of all of the things I could do, there's only one thing I want to do. Today, I want to spend the whole day with my best friend, you. The point of the Sabbath was never law. The point of the Sabbath was always love. So let's get into point number three. Trying to answer this question, does God even want friends? Let's study God and man in the garden. Now, 
I'm going to show you some things God does in the garden, but I'm going to present them to you in a different way. These are things God did in the garden that were essentially statements God made. So I'm going to point at things God did, but I'm going to present them to you as statements God made. Here's the first statement I want to draw your attention to. God says, I made a place just for you. Genesis 2 verse 8. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. Notice, God planted the garden for man himself. Now remember, last week we talked about a couple different Hebrew words for making something. To create, to make, then with man, it was handcraft. And now we get to the Garden of Eden and there's a new word, the Hebrew word natah. And it means to establish by planting. So think about it. There are things God made that he established by speaking. There are things God made that God established by forming. But the garden, Scripture says, was established by God planting it himself. Interestingly enough, in Genesis 2, verse 7, God gives man a pulse. And then in verse 8, God immediately gives man his place. Genesis 2, verse 4, I want to show you this because I, I really think it's a divine line of demarcation. What comes before it in Genesis 1 through Genesis 2, 3, and what comes after it, Genesis 2, 5, all the way to the end of Revelation, something is different. Genesis 2, 4 says, this is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. So this is the end of the first account of creation, the first seven days. When the Lord God, so not just God, that's important to note, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, interestingly enough, this is the Hebrew name Yahweh Elohim. Remember last week I talked to you about the divine deliberation between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Genesis 1, 26? Well, we know it's a divine deliberation between the three because the name for God that's used in Genesis 1.26 is Elohim. It's a plural name. So that's how we know God's not just talking to himself. He's speaking to the rest of the Godhead. Elohim denotes the one true triune God. But in Genesis 2.4, we see a new name for God. Yahweh. But here's something really interesting. Remember who's narrating the Torah? Moses. Exodus 33.11 says that God would speak to Moses face to face like a friend. Moses wasn't around for creation. His best friend gave him an account of creation. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote it down right? Okay, let's go a little bit further. The name Yahweh, while the first time we see it is in Genesis 2, 4, but the first time we actually hear it is Exodus chapter 6, when Moses says, God, whom should I say sent me? And what does God say? Yahweh. But then what does God say? This name I did not reveal to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To them, I was El Shaddai. 
I was God of power. But to you, my best friend, I am the personal God. The God who makes house calls. Yahweh. This is fascinating to me. That only one person was told the name Yahweh in Exodus 6, but the narrator, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, goes back to Genesis 2-4 and doesn't say Elohim, he says Yahweh Elohim did this. It was the personal God doing special things personally for his special person. God created earth for all man. But God created Eden just for his special man. The next thing God says, I'll help you find our special place. Notice two things it did there. First, I think God is saying, I'll help you. Second, I don't think God calls it your place. He calls it our place. One thing you have to know about our God is that he is especially passionate about special places with his special people. Just, just ask Israel. What makes the land special isn't just that God promised the land to them. It's his romantic why behind the promise. That soil is special soil because God set it apart especially for his special people and a very special purpose. That's why it matters. But I could, I could go through Goshen. I could personalize it for me when I was 18 years old. I'd never been to Arizona before. And on a mountain in North Scottsdale, God says, Preston, this is our special place. And after many years of serving me and these people, you're going to die here. It's an odd way to say this is our special place, but... Pastor Robert, when I told him that that's what I felt like God said, he goes, hey, when you tell this part of the story, you might want to change the verbiage just a little bit. People might freak out when you say, God's going to kill you here. It's not what I'm saying. When I was 18, God said, Preston, this is our special place. He didn't say your special place. He was saying our special place. Genesis 2, 8, it's the back half. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. God placed the man in the special place he planted especially for man. Why? Because God desired his place for man to be his place with man. The special place God makes for man is always intended to be God's special place with man. The best part of the garden wasn't the garden. It was God in the garden. It's not that it was Adam's place. It's that when God was in the place, and Adam was in the place. It was their place. God doesn't look at man and say, there's a special place I have for you, but good luck finding it. I think God says, I've set aside a very special place, especially for you. But this place isn't just for you to enjoy. It's a place for me to enjoy you unlike any other place on the earth. In other words, God sees a side of me in Scottsdale, no matter where in the world I travel, he's not going to see the Scottsdale side of me in any other city on the earth because it's our special place. And he enjoys me here more than any other place on the earth where he might enjoy me. 
I think God says, because I so badly want to enjoy our special place together, I'm not going to make you find it by yourself. If you'll let me, I'll place you there. Why do you think I harp on obedience so much? Because there's a place God has prepared for you which you will never find in disobedience. You want to find that special place? And some of y'all are tripping out because you're saying, I don't have a place. No, no, no. You haven't been placed in your place. Another, probably a better way to say it is, you haven't found it yet. But notice the divine order of events. God gives man a pulse, then God plants his place, then God places man in the place he planted for him. You got a pulse? I promise you there's a place. God loves making special places for his special people. What does Jesus say right now? A special place is being prepared for you. And when it's ready, he says, I'll come get you. That's for them. But he also has already prepared a special place for you to minister on the earth and be ministered to by the God of the universe. And it's your place, not your place. So God gives man a pulse. Plants, him, plants his special place, then places man in his special place. What does he say next? Here's the next thing I think God says. There are other things I pass over, but I want to draw your attention to this. I think God says, don't get it twisted. This is where God establishes boundaries. Because there's no such thing as a healthy relationship without boundaries. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, but the Lord God warned man. You may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden. Don't tell me God's a prude. He pointed at every tree and said, enjoy those bad boys. Then he says, now that tree right there, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not touch that tree. Don't eat from that fruit because that fruit will kill you. God sets rules. Now, one of the things you have to know, one of the tension points for me, over the years, as Lord, when I go to do friend of God, I have friends in particular denominations who, who have this thought. Anyone who thinks they can be intimate with the God of the universe is a person who lowers God to their level. And I get it. I've seen it. Lord, how am I going to address this? These two verses right here, where God sets rules relationally. God sets rules to send the message. While I made you in my image, that will never make you my equal. God says, you most certainly are my friend, but you are most certainly not me. I set the rules because I have all the power. Now, let me try and illustrate this. You have to understand there is always special protocol when you are in relationship with someone who has great power. I have several friends around the world who have a lot of power. Times where I'll be with a friend in London and he'll say, uh, we're sitting in the back seat, the driver's driving, and he says, I have a call with my attorney, big transaction, Preston, whatever you hear next, you're never to repeat. It was a solemn moment. I realized I was in big boy land. Billion dollar conversations. I started learning, okay, 
This is new, new territory, gotta learn new protocol. I'll use a, a, an example that I have had a lot of time with over the last two decades. Pastor Robert, my mentor and hero, a man with a lot of influence around the world. And for some reason, God has seen fit since I was 21 years old for me to have private access to him, no matter how much power God gives him. And so, over the years, we'd have moments like this where he would say, okay, Preston, now pretend you're me and tell me what you would do in this situation. And so I would pretend to be him and act like I was the senior pastor of the church and I would tell him what I would do and then I would hear these sounds, wah, wah, <laughs> big whammy. But he would let me pretend to be him, okay? What if, though, I took that private principle out for a spin publicly and crossed the lines of our relationship by taking something he allows in private out in public where it's inappropriate? So he goes to Guatemala. He's ministering. I know he's gone. I fly to Dallas. And I walk into the senior suite pretending to be him. I walk right up to his executive assistant and I fire her on the spot. Hello, my name is Robert Preston Morris. Thank you for your services. You were fired. Okay, what, what is Debbie gonna do? She's gonna look me in the eye and go, you, sir, are no John F. Kennedy. Some of y'all are not old enough to understand that line. You are no Robert Morris. You're just pretending to be him. Okay? Now let me connect this to my relationship with God. Our God is so gracious that even when we don't understand the protocol, he extends us grace in our ignorance. When I was a young teenager, I understood the concept of being friends with God. I got it fairly early because of his pursuit, not my intellect. But I didn't understand the protocol. So we moved very quickly and intimacy, probably too quickly for me to keep up learning the protocol of being in relationship with someone who has all power. And so one day, I remember vividly, I started commanding God to do things. I was young, I didn't know. It was, it was pure, I thought that's what I was supposed to do because I had heard people take authority, I just didn't understand what it was or how to steward it. So I was saying, God, you will do this for me and my family. You will do, I mean, thank God lightning didn't strike. <laughs> and then after probably about six, God, you wills, not God, you better, not God, you must, God, you will do what I tell you to do. I started to get this really weird feeling in the depth of my being, like something was wrong and I had crossed the line. But he didn't yell at me. He lovingly corrected me. And this is what he said. Preston, while you're made in my image, you will never be my equal while you are my friend. You will never be me. I think God was laying the groundwork 
to help us understand the protocol of being in intimate relationship with someone who has all power. You can come close to me, but you will never be me. Don't ever get it twisted. Here's the next thing God says. I think God says in the garden, my favorite subject on the earth is you. God studied his special person in their special place. God didn't walk through the garden as a know-it-all saying to Adam, I know something you don't know. Neither did he look at Adam and say, I know something about you you're never going to know. God has this behavior in the garden as someone who knows everything, but it's as though the look on his face is like he's learning it for the first time, and yet we know he's not. Genesis 2.18 is where I see it. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Why did God say it out loud? Just go to work and do it, bro. Because he's trying to teach us something about what he's like. I just get the picture of God sitting on a stump, staring at his new best friend all day long. And he sees on his countenance this look, like something's missing. And then one day, studying man infinitely, without limit, he says, there's something that isn't good. It's like God is studying man's every move by staring at him. It's as though God noticed something for the first time, even though he already knew it before the beginning of time. God was completely aware of everything because he already knew everything. But God stared at man every time as though it were the very first time. His gaze towards you, you, is so intimately intense that every time he looks at you, it's as though it's the very first time he's ever seen you. This is what I think David's trying to help us understand in Psalm 139, verse 2. God, you know when I sit down or stand up, not because you know everything about everything, but because you never stop staring at me. That's how you know when I stand up or sit down. God never looks away to then get a new look. Every look is though it were his next look, as though it were a new look, even though it's actually just the same look. God never stops looking at you. Here's the next thing I think God says to man. I see you. Same verse. It's not just I study you. I study you because I see you, and I see you because I study you. Because God infinitely studied man, man knew God intimately saw man. It was as though God shouted, Eureka, I've found something. Everything to this point has been good, but there's something I found which isn't good when man is alone. And I believe God said it out loud so man could hear him say it. Because I personally believe that when man heard God say there's something that isn't good when my new best friend is alone, I think Adam 
felt seen. I wonder if Adam in his heart wasn't thinking. And I wonder if they had a conversation. I can't believe you noticed. God, I was, I was just trying not to be that guy. I mean, you've given me everything. I didn't want to be that guy to be like, mm, there's one more thing. And so I just bottled it up. And I wonder if God wouldn't have said, I know. I watched your face. Every time you looked at something new, but it didn't produce what you were looking for. I see you. I saw it in your countenance. But why did God do it? Everything was perfect, yet man was missing something he wanted, something he was created to need. Why would God do this? Man had the perfect life. He had everything he could ever want. Why would God create him to need the only thing he didn't have in the midst of a perfect existence? I think God wanted man to know how it felt to have everything, but still want something, a someone. When Adam says, at last, about woman, I wonder if God didn't say, tell me about it. I know exactly how you feel. That's how I felt before you. And that's how I felt when I got you. I think God wanted his friend to feel what he felt before creation. God's saying, Adam, everything was perfect before creation. But something was still missing. You. I'm going to skip some stuff. You can read in the book. Let's get to the next part. Ah, we got time. I remember one day, in the early days, I was prayer walking Scottsdale Road one night on a Friday night, and I saw a bunch of young women very provocatively dressed. Not, not taking shots at all, I promise. I was just noticing my environment and praying based on what I was seeing. And I started praying. Lord, I know when we dress that way, we're trying to provoke being seen by someone else. So God, I pray that in this moment, you would be El Roi, the God who sees her, the God who sees her, the God who sees her. I'll never forget, I felt the Lord say, Preston, it looks like they're trying to be seen, but what their heart's crying out for is to actually be known. And then this next thing he says, one of man's greatest desires is to be seen because one of man's greatest needs is to be known. Preston, you can't be known if you're not first seen. God doesn't study you so he can learn. He already knows. God studies you so you can feel known. Next thing God says, I want nothing to come between us. This is Genesis 2.25. Now the man and his wife were both buck naked. Texas translation. 
Watch this next phrase. But they felt no shame. How come you all wore clothing to church today? Before I let that sit for too long with a pregnant pause, in a room full of this many people, there are at least one or two or three people thinking, you mean it's an option not to? Here's what I would say. Don't be that guy. We'll remove you from the premises the same way we remove Niners fans. I'm taking shots at myself. Don't be acting like I... Last week, I saw all your Niner jerseys to where my wife said after church, hey, babe, did you see how many Niners jerseys there were? I go, honey, I don't feel seen. (laughs) Why did you wear clothing? What is clothing, for that matter? Clothing is one of the ways we hide things we don't want others to see. The garden was so pure and God's desire for nothing to come between them was so strong that God set it up in such a way that they had no shame and no awareness. They were actually even naked compared to being clothed. Why? Because God was making a statement. Here's what an MC looks like. You hide nothing. I want nothing hidden. I want nothing coming between us. A necessary ingredient to intimate relationship is a complete and utter lack of hiding anything from the other. Now we get to point number four. If you want to try and answer the question, does God want friends? You need to study God and man after man's mistake in the garden. Well, Preston, we know what happens after their mistake. Okay, so they sin, and we know that what happens next is God curses them and God kicks them out of the garden. Okay, God does curse. And he does kick them out of the garden. But if you don't understand what happens before that, you cannot understand God's heart for those things. So let me show you. First thing that happens after the fall, man hid from God. Genesis 3.8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. The first thing man did after he sinned was hide from God. Genesis 2.25 shows us the state of things between man and God in the garden before sin. Nothing was hidden. But Satan acted like God was hiding something from Eve. And the only way to find it was to eat the fruit of the forbidden tree. But what Satan was really doing was trying to get the eater of the fruit to hide herself from the creator of the fruit. Why? Because Satan's goal, since he was removed from the place where God was, was to get man to be separated from the place where God is. His goal with sin all along was to separate God's best friend from God using sin. And that's where shame comes in. Remember verse 25, they felt no shame. Then they hid. Why'd they hide? Because they felt shame now. Sin created space for shame. Shame came because of sin, but shame came from the serpent. Don't you dare think that the goal of temptation when Satan tries to tempt you is sin. Look deeper at the picture. The goal is shame. 
sin is taken care of. But have you ever seen that a sin that's been taken care of by the blood of Jesus can still produce shame if we allow the serpent to make us feel it? It ain't just about sin. It's as much about shame. Why? Because shame causes you to hide from the one whom you least want to know what you've done. First thing that happens after the fall, man hides from God. What's the second thing that happens? God pursues man. This is one of the most theologically romantic statements you will ever hear in your life. The first thing man did after he sinned was hide from his best friend. But the first thing God did after his best friend sinned was pursue his best friend. Do not tell me that when you sin, and I'm not yelling at you, I'm coming at what's coming at you. Do not tell me that when you sin, God runs away from you. That is theologically inaccurate, and I just showed it to you. God wasn't running away from his best friend. God was running towards his best friend. Genesis 3, 9 and 10, the very next two verses, then the Lord called, God called to the man, where are you? They heard him walking. He doesn't say, what did you do? He says to his best friend, where are you? This is an approach you've never taken with me. And God's walking in the garden. In what direction is he walking? Towards the friend he's going to find. Please don't tell me. Preston, my sin's so bad. I aborted a baby. It is bad. But it's not bigger than the blood. I will chase you for the rest of your life if I have to. Knock on every door you find yourself hiding behind and say, he's not running away from you. He is running after you. What's the next thing that goes down? God curses. God curses. Now, let me say, sometimes I'm wrong. You need to know that. Now, I know if I say that publicly, for some, the enemy might start messing with them going, well, if he's wrong one time, he could be wrong all the time. That's ridiculous. No one but Jesus was right all the time walking this earth. I made a mistake in last week's message talking about the curse. Here's what I said. God cursed the serpent, then God cursed the woman, then God cursed the man. No, he didn't. Saw it this week. He didn't. So allow me to correct myself for being incorrect. Saw it this week. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but in Genesis 3, I'm going to read you 16, 17, 18, and 19 when God speaks to the woman and the man. But before he speaks to the woman and the man, he amer, that's the Hebrew word, I'm butchering it, but amer, to speak. It says God amer. He spoke to the serpent, and then in the middle of speaking to the serpent, he curses, arar. So he's speaking, but in speaking, he curses. You tracking with me? Okay, now watch what happens. When he speaks to, 
In verse 16, the woman. Then he said, Amer, to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he, Amer, he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, watch this, the ground is cursed because of you. The ground is Arar. Not the man, the ground. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. God doesn't curse the woman. He's speaking to her. God doesn't curse the man in speaking to him, but he curses the ground while speaking to him. God told man and woman the result of their sin. God told the serpent of God's response to the serpent's role in sin. And God told the ground of its new responsibility after sin. He curses the ground. Why does God curse the ground? I'll give you Preston's opinion. I think there's a romantic why behind God cursing the ground. Remember, God had already said to man, I give you a pulse, I plant your place, I place you in your place, and I give you a purpose in your place. What was the purpose? To till the soil of the ground, to steward it. So God takes man's purpose and says to the ground, here's your new responsibility after the fall. Be difficult. Why would God say to the ground, be difficult for the man? I think there's a romantic why. I think it's God looking past the dirt to the dirt, the dust of the ground, the man, saying, you're going to have a proclivity to try and do things without me. Yet I want you to know my heart is to do everything with you. So I'm going to make the ground difficult in hopes it will be hard enough that you come to me to help you do it with you. Why is my calling so hard? Because God loves you so much. If it were easy, there'd be too many days. You'd be tempted to do it without the one who wants to be your best friend. So we curse the ground, not the man. What happens next? God vanishes, man. This is brutal. Genesis 3, 23 and 24. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out. Literally, the Hebrew there is drove him out. Make sure you get the picture. God drives them out of the garden. He drives Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, driving them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim, massive, strong angels to the east of the Garden of Eden. And God placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, this is really important what we're going to go walk through next. The image you have in your mind of the look on God's face when he banishes man from the garden is an extremely important part of your theology. 
Most believe the look on God's face in that moment said, I want you out. But that's not it at all. As God looked from the inside of the gate at his best friend who was now on the outside of the gate, the look on God's face said only one thing. I want you back. But Preston, how can you say that? God kicked them out and made it impossible for them to get back in. I can very comfortably say that because of one verse of scripture. Look at God's why for kicking them out. I snuck you right past it so that I could bring you back to it. Verse 22 of Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, Yahweh Elohim, another divine deliberation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. In what state would they live forever? Sin. Separated from God. Listen, they hadn't even been kicked out of the garden yet, and they had already separated themselves from God. Sin came and occupied a space and made distance between God and his best friend. Here's what God was saying. In order for you to return to me forever, I have to remove you for now. This separation is only meant to be temporary. Sweet baby, it will be over before you know it. But if I don't keep you away from that tree, it will be over forever. When God banished man from the garden, he was not saying, stay away from me. When God banished man from the garden, he was saying, stay away from that tree. There's one more thing I want to show you that I just think is divinely gangster. There's one more verse I skipped over so I could bring you back to it. It's verse 21. I think God says, in doing what he does in verse 21, I'm going to read it to you in a minute. I think God says, now, let me show the snake and the sinner a preview of coming attractions. Little Bible trivia. Who was the first to draw blood on the earth? Cain was, Preston. Yes and no. Cain was the first to draw human blood. But who was the first to shed any blood? God himself. And when does he do it? Between the curse and the kicking out in one verse. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. How did he get those animal skins? He didn't just wave his mighty magic finger and say, leather. He took the life of two animals. He drew blood in the middle of the curse and the kicking out. God showed the serpent a sneak preview of his plan to get man back forever a plan God had established since before the creation of anything, including the serpent. Here was the plan to right man's wrong so God could get his best friend back forever. The blood! 
It was the blood. And not just any blood. It was his own blood. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18, 19, and 20. For you know that God paid a ransom, a price to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors, Adam. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him as your price, your ransom, long before the world began. God in between the curse and the kicking out. Just hits the pause button says, y'all ain't gonna get this. You stupid snake, you ain't gonna see this coming. I just gave you a curse and told earth's first heel. You may get his heel, but that heel gonna crush your neck. And then he hits the pause button and says, I'd like to do a little something. So that anybody who tries to teach this incorrectly and say man was kicked out of the garden because God was mad at him. I'm going to shed some blood and cover him before I kick him out. Ha! She got it. I want you to think about this. The divine genius of what God says in banishing man from the garden. I told you not to eat from two trees. You already ate one of them. If I leave you be, you'll eat from the other one. You eat from the other one, you'll stay as you are forever. Dead and not even know it. Apart from me, being able, not being able to do anything about it. And it's almost as though God says, over my dead son's body, this shall not be. It shall not remain. Think about this. God banishes the first man from the garden, the place where God's presence was, saying, stay away from the tree. And then thousands of years later, through the second Adam, and with a different tree, God says to all mankind, come back to me through this tree.